Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 29th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID Lockdown Week 11. I am Charles Hain. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And I'm here with No Film School writer, Michelle De La Tour. Hi, everyone. And we are here talking about the return of wide-release movies to theaters this summer with Tenet. We're going to be talking about 8K is coming and why you should just get over it. We're going to be talking about Red releasing the price before the specs for the new Komodo. And we're going to be following all that up with some advice on writing from a panel of Sopranos writers. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, our first story. Obviously, we are people who love watching movies in theaters. That is why we talk about this on the podcast. I haven't seen a movie in a theater in a long time. Most of us have not, although theaters are open in Sweden, so maybe some of you are still going. But Hollywood, and by Hollywood, we mean actually a specific movie theater. I love how New York Times stories are always like, Hollywood is ready, as if everybody is making the same decisions. But this is just one studio. But um, (laughs) there will be a wide-release movie in July. The new movie from Chris Nolan, Tenet, which is a... um, time it's not time travel it's time bending it's time shifting action movie um a lot of fascinating stars uh a lot really like a couple of really amazing engaging trailers but the big news about it at the moment is that they're going to release it wide in theaters in july and so a little bit of context in what a wide release means so july 17th july 17th in your calendar so it used to be movies could release sort of slowly over time before the 1970s. You not, you might only make two or 300 prints of a movie and you'd circulate them around town. So you're like, all right, that, that movie's first going to play in Memphis and that's like the A-list market. And then we're just going to ship that print out to Jackson while a new movie comes into Memphis. So you'd have movies run for a year as these prints would move over the country. But, you know, as marketing changed, as nationwide marketing changed with TV and obviously blockbusters like Jaws and Star Wars, the idea of a wide release became really important. And then as piracy came in about 20 years ago, the international wide release became really important. It used to be that it was much more spread out country to country, but since piracy became so easy, the movie theaters really started, to, movie companies really started to focus on like an international wide release. If you could do it, if you could open in a lot of territories all at once, the thought was you're cutting down a little bit on your um, the hit you might take from piracy, and you're also cutting down on marketing costs because you're marketing worldwide all at once, and you know there's like all this cross marketing where people might see things from other countries and whatnot. You're also inflating those opening numbers, right? Yeah, you're getting them big numbers, <laughs> which, which have always meant a lot. Even yeah, if to- they, even if nobody really reads between the lines on them and talks about things like I don't know inflation, well, inflation and drop off, right? Like people are so excited if they have a huge first week, and then if it drops off massively on the second week, they don't care. Whereas, like, it's way more like I would way rather work on projects where it was like, oh, we ran for seven weeks because people loved it so much they kept telling their friends to go, and it kept going and going and going because it had legitimate word of mouth. People really focus on that first week number. We want to be back in, like, Hollywood, Hollywood, crazy California wants to be back in. Uh, they've announced that Tenet, the new Chris Nolan movie, if you don't know Chris Nolan, he's largely famous for the three Batman movies he made, but he sort of transitioned out of that into being able to make actual conceptual blockbusters like Inception and Dunkirk and Interstellar, where, you know, he's... He's one of the few filmmakers out there that can make big tentpole, huge budget movies without what's known as pre-existing IP. Like 
Batman as pre-existing IP. People already know who Batman is. The studios think that's easier to market, so they make a Batman movie because it's easier to get butts and seats. But Nolan is really in a position where, I mean, Inception getting financed is insane. Like, it is a big tentpole sci-fi action mind bender that was also very, very good and had big stars in it. But it's it's the kind of movie we think of getting made in the 80s and 90s, but not many of them get made anymore. And uh, Nolan is really sort of like maybe the king at the moment of those types of movies, also colorblind. And you can see a little bit of the influence of his colorblindness and the distinctive desaturated uh, blue color palette of most of his films. But uh, yeah, Tenet, which is a exciting movie that uh, was on my radar. I always go see Chris Nolan in the theater. I also have to say Chris Nolan is um, like, he's never done a 3d movie because he thinks the projection is too dark in 3d, which I agree with. Uh, and so he's like, no, I want projection to look good. So I'm just going to shoot it in the thing that looks good. And I don't care if it's in 3D or not because I don't think it looks good. So I respect that. And he is also a big theater junkie. Like he is very focused on a immersive, intense theatrical experience. Um, he does things in sound design that you can't really replicate on a home TV screen. Uh, he's, you know, he was behind the sort of large format film rebirth of the last decade, you know, dark Knight doing huge sequences in IMAX was one of the first movies that was like, Hey, what if we went back to shooting huge negative again? Um, which is now something everybody who's shooting film does, but you know, he was really involved in pushing that, which is something that you can really appreciate in the theatrical experience. So I think it's really fitting that his film is going to be the first one back. But the big question that I have for the two of you, are you guys going to go? Will you be there? I'm going to try and be there. I'll I'll mask up and go to an opening weekend Chris Nolan movie, July 17th. Are you guys going to try and be in the theater? Michelle, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. But I think this is the right film to reopen theaters with. It's a film that really only can be seen, I feel like, in all of its glory. In a moving, shaking, brilliant theater experience. I, that feels very early. It just, I think it depends. Are they, do you know if they're planning to do social distancing in the theater? I think that's going to be state by state, right? Like Sweden's movie theaters are still open and people are distanced in the theater and you're not allowed to sit too near to other people and you're buying your tickets in groups and then it's like spread out. So you're not around people. I think you're going to certainly see like any movie theaters that do open in New York. I don't know if New York will have reached entertainment's phase four in New York. We might not be at phase four. I might not physically be able to do it in New York City because we're not there yet. But uh, if you're in Georgia or if you're in Nebraska where movie theaters are open, I bet there's going to be movie theaters that are like, nope, no social distancing for us. We're all we're all sitting together. So it's really going to be state by state. I mean, there's, you know, there's people crowded together at events in this country right now. You know, not even social distanced events like that. Like this is truly uncharted territory, uh, stating the obvious. But like every city and state is dealing with this in their in a unique way, and some similar ways, some different. But I mean, we've got people crowded together at events already in parts of the country, in parts of the world. What the fallout of that is is, is hard to measure yet. Um, what the fallout of some of the reopening that's already started for me, speaking as a Californian locally, we have not seen yet. Um, so, but 
you know, there's also other questions like we still don't really know that much about how this disease is transmitted. We know some, but there was a recent CDC thing about how they're not so sure it can be transmitted on surfaces anymore. So a lot of people were doing things like wiping down boxes and groceries, which maybe was unnecessary. Totally did that. All the groceries. Yeah, but but we, but maybe it wasn't unnecessary. And I only bring all of that up to say that this is where, um, look, Tenet is, and Christopher Nolan and Warner Brothers are the pin, are the top of the, the pyramid of our industry. But we're seeing it affecting all kinds of other industries in similar ways. And this is going to be a big, obviously huge moment to see if this works and, and how it plays out. But since we still don't know so much about how this disease even works, and we still don't know like if we're suddenly going to get the quote unquote second wave of infections and do the thing where we spike the the curve instead of flatten it. And we still got a lot of people who don't even think we need to do any of this stuff. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> like I like my answer to am I going to go see it is I don't know. Like I I think that in three weeks things could seem completely different to me than they do now. And the crazy thing about I'm using this I guess as a way to talk about the general state of things, but I think we don't know day to day what's what like we're going to learn new things all the time and we just have to write it out. Um, I would love to go see it in a theater in July. I would also love for the National Basketball Association to open back up in July. Don't know if it's going to happen. I know that's not going to happen. Florida. I know similarly they're they're making moves towards it. And similarly, it seems like you don't know enough to even know how to do it safely. Right. Like, and, and I think that maybe with the movie theater experience, we know enough that we can do it safely. Like if we, but, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. And I, I, as far as like Christopher Nolan goes, um, I love that he's like this champion of, of going to movie theaters and like pushing us to stay going to movie theaters, even through this. It's like one of his quirks, and I love movie theaters too, Charles, and the theatrical experience. And I love that he is one of the few people who is allowed to make a tent pole, a tenant pole, summer blockbuster that's built entirely around a strange original idea. And every time I talk to Christopher Nolan, I always want to bring that up. I just think it's awesome that someone's allowed to do that. A lot of people used to do that, but now he's the one. I think there's a can go versus will go question. Like there's a difference between will you go and can you go? And what I worry about is at some point this will all turn into who's allowed to leave, not just as our house, but who's allowed to go into big into spaces with other people and who can't. And I feel I worry that that will transfer into the workforce at some point. People who are allowed to take jobs in it can go edit or freelance edit because they're healthy or they have already had this or all that stuff versus someone who's immunocompromised or older. Charles, there's a term for this, right? You've talked about it before and it happened with the flu. privilege. Oh, thank you. You know, we've started to see more reports about how a lot of this is going to work. And I haven't seen a lot of, we're only going to let people work who've had a successful um, test of that they have antibodies because I do think that is a really complicated, messy thing. And I'm really glad that, you know, that was coming up a lot two months ago and I don't really hear much about it anymore. 
because all that means is that people who want to work and we all want to work, we all want to be back to work. I was just on three hours of calls trying to figure out how we're all going to get in rooms together again because we miss making movies. I wouldn't go deliberately self-infect, but I certainly know people who would because they want to be back to work and they need that money and they'd be willing to assume like, oh, I'll get it. And then I'll go like quarantine by myself for three weeks and I won't infect anybody, but then I'll have my antibodies and I'll be able to get back to work and feed my family. And so I'm glad we're avoiding that. But it's also like who can go in terms of who it's safe. Like that's the thing is I say I would be there because I also do all the grocery shopping and my moral justification would be like, well, I do the grocery shopping. How is that different than going to a movie theater? But in the end, would I really go and risk getting it and then maybe giving it to my wife and baby? Probably not. What if you felt by then though – like you had more information. See, that's why I say I don't know, because I think like, what if I get more information about how it transfers? And what if we've learned a lot in a couple months? Or is it a couple months? It's a little less than a couple months. But I guess I hold out some hope that things will change, like the landscape will change. And I suspect that Warner Brothers and the rest are holding out hope for that as well. But yeah, it's so tricky. We plot, we want these, we want to find ways to get back to something approaching normal. And it's just like, we're staring down this. Look, here's the tricky thing that I keep mentally coming back to, um, with this and with other things, the, the thing you brought up, Michelle, the, the, are you able and can you, or the, can you, and will you thing? If you can, you might want to so badly that you do anyway, even if you shouldn't. The ability to do it makes you like think, well, I just have to do this. I miss it so much. And then you do it. And maybe that's a mistake, right? I also will take this opportunity to say that the oxygen tank in the Tenet trailer fit, hits a little differently this time around because he's wearing oxygen the whole time. <laughs> I mean, it, everything reads a little differently now. I don't know if anybody has watched Isle of Dogs recently, but the whole dog flu and snout fever and uh, like the whole thing is like a complete, everything looks different now. I think there's something really funny about the trailer. Like just talking about the content of the movie itself real quick. It's, you could almost believe it's a parody trailer on some level because it's like super serious. And it's about World War III, the apocalypse, the end of the world, but you have no idea what's going on <laughs> at any point in the trailer. They're just all talking about how this is the most important thing imaginable, but we have no idea what it is or what they're doing. <laughs> like, and to me, whenever I watch it, I, I laugh because it's like, wow, it's so vague, but it's so massive. You know what I mean? I, I was reading a Western book the other day. and Oh, which one? Uh, I was reading uh, Comanche, Moon, Comanche Moon by uh, um, Larry McMurtry, and my wife just looked at the cover of the book and was like, that book comes with a steak and a whiskey. And, um, <laughs> and like, you know, I've really settled into the, like, the dad phase of my life where like I read Western novels. I love big action movies that are like so serious. On the subject of people who refuse to adapt to technology – Larry McMurtry still out there writing on a Hercules <laughs> typewriter. We had an article in that a bookstore. In a bookstore. Don't knock a typewriter. I, Come I, on. Do you write on a typewriter, Michelle? I would if I had one, for sure. I started writing on a typewriter. I had a typewriter I got from my parents, and I wrote early stuff on a typewriter. And then I've switched to computer, and it is amazing. Um, I just want to give one last pitch to Larry McMurtry. He has a whole town in Texas that's all a bookstore. It's called Archer City. 
And anytime a shop closes in it, he just buys it. And then the bookstore takes over it. So if you ever go to Archer City, the whole thing is one ginormous bookstore. It is amazing and highly recommended. I got to go. I've never been. I'm the biggest fan of his. Maybe maybe you're the second biggest, but I refuse yeah. to believe you're a bigger fan. Okay. Anyway. I like drove out of my way the last time I drove cross country to make sure I went to Archer City because it's so great. Um, but he is against technology. He is He's not against technology. He actually has a computer and he does computery stuff. He just still writes on a typewriter because it's still the way he learned to write when he started writing in the 50s. Um, respect. 8K is a technology that is coming that has some pushback. And we wanted to do our second story this week on 8K because I think it's an interesting story for a couple of reasons. Um, and one of the specific reasons is, you know, the article uh, written by our tech editor, Darren James, was 8K is coming and get over it. But what was interesting about that headline is this like very accurate observation that there are many people who are really hating on it. And like, it is like a fun academic game to play on hating it back the same way that, you know, when red first came out with 4k in 2006, people used to hate on it. And it's just funny to me to really look at technological resistance because, you know, uh, there was a, um, Michael Cioni back when he was at light iron did a presentation last year at NAB. Remember when we could all go to presentations at NAB, um, about, you know, remember when we can go to NAB? <laughs> yeah. About the inevitability of AK. And what's interesting to me is like, what are the things we push against and what are the things we don't? Because, like, as much as I love Chris Nolan for continuing to shoot film, the film versus digital thing seems like a much bigger divide. But to then, once you've, if you have embraced digital, if digital is what you're shooting, to then have to fight to be like, no, 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 4K is enough and we don't need AK. It's like, well, we're already in this digital space. We've already jumped into the cauldron. Can't we go further within the cauldron? I love Um, that analogy there because um, I remember at – speaking of Sundance last – or NAB last year, I remember uh, Slamdance slash Sundance from a couple years ago and I saw Soderbergh there and he took questions from the audience and he also took questions from other filmmakers through the moderator and one was from Nolan and Nolan asked Soderbergh, so – when are you going to get uh, go back to like real filmmaking and shoot on film and not phones or whatever? And it was glib and, you know, they're friends. So, you know, it's all fun and games. But <laughs> Soderbergh's response was, he said, when are you going to stop writing scripts with a pen and use a computer? <laughs> and like, And I think that, look, there are things film celluloid does that are still unique. So as an artist in a medium, you might still choose it because it is different, right? It is a different thing. But 8K is just more of 4K. <laughs> like it's more Ks, like it's more pixels, right? Um, I don't get why you like it's not a different thing. It's like I I, I can I can get behind the choice of I want to write on the typewriter or I want to do the this. There are certain things that make sense to me, but um if you're just saying you don't want as much information, and I think that's a big part of what the story is, and part of where the story came from is that we've seen, as you have seen, Charles, over the years at No Film School and in the community in general, many people who really push back on any further movement down this path. Like, you don't need that much. For me, my answer to your question, Charles, I think the resistance comes from why do I have to buy that thing? Are you just upselling me another thing that maybe I don't need? Uh, and I think I think that's the like, I can get so much out of my 4K 
Why are you making me pay for more Ks? I don't think it's resistance so much as it's reality, which is the fact that the technology to edit the 8K files isn't there yet on a regular machine. And so part of it is if I go out and film 8K on a device in a format that is raw or whatever it is, insert camera here, I'm still going to have to transcode into proxies to edit, which is what we would do normally in 4K land if you have a machine that isn't, uh, that if you want to edit so that you can actually edit the material and go from there. So I, th- I think part of the resistance is that on a general level, we don't have computers <laughs> at a regular price. It'd be one thing if you were buying the 11,000 Mac Mac Pro setup. It's another if you're using your 16-inch MacBook Pro. And without that kind of accessibility, I don't know if people are willing to adopt it. On the other hand, I feel like if you can shoot on it on an iPhone, it's already out of date. So if the resolution on the iPhone is a 4K, then we should probably start looking elsewhere into the higher resolutions. I think that the part of the feedback is around the get over it term. Well, getting over it in this case, what does that mean? Is that if I'm going to get over it, does that mean I'm going to go use 8K cameras from now on? Or does getting over it mean I have to go buy a new cam- a new computer setup to be able to handle the 8K footage? <laughs> take out a second, take out a second mortgage. Or, yeah. I don't no, know what I the think, get over it means. Like, is it, is it adoption? Yeah. I think those are really good points. I think the financial and the just the physical constraints of the other tech is is a big is a good answer. I was just going to say I think the get over it is about the living and and it's it's in the post in there along with a lot of discussion about the technology but he's really referencing the argument just for argument's sake. There is a culture of just arguing in the no film school message boards and comment sections and Facebook page as much as there is on any other for forum that it's just not good and you don't need it but it doesn't it's just sort of like the why do we hate on it you know why do we hate on it f- just because i think that that's part of it i will say that there's a difference i think between using an 8k camera at full resolution and at full capacity versus using an 8k camera at a lower rate because using that camera is likely still going to get you better footage. There's kind of a middle ground where I feel like we were a couple of years ago with 4K, or even if you shot on a 4K eligible, eligible? Sure. Camera, and you shot at a lower resolution, it still looked better than if you went to go film, you know, a 1080 on an other camera. So even if you're just shooting on an 8K eligible camera at a lower resolution, it would be fine. And you're kind of halfway there. So, so here's my take on all this, which is that Apple does a lot of things very, very, very well. And one of the things Apple's been doing since about the mid-90s is Apple's been doing a very good job of hiding a lot of the complications behind video from people. So starting in the 90s, you could go out and you could buy an XL1 mini DV camera and plug it in with FireWire to your iMac computer and edit and everything worked and nothing was sluggish and it was amazing. And it and you know, you you never needed to know what a codec was, you need, never needed to know what a wrapper was. Like, you know, it was designed to make it kind of painless. But what's interesting is that that only works when you have like a very tightly controlled ecosystem, right? Like MiniDV was a very tightly controlled specification. It was a very lockdown thing. And even when we initially bumped up to HD, we sort of did this initial bump up to HD in conjunction with 
ProRes, in conjunction with cameras that could shoot it, in conjunction with like computers that can handle it. But as soon as we started getting to formats like 4K, we we you you had to start learning and understanding, you know, sort of a, a proxy offline dailies workflow where you're shooting a bigger thing than your computer can handle and you're working at a lower resolution format, which is something that like frankly, I don't think is ever going to go away. I think that cameras are always going to be about five to seven years ahead of our computer. So we're always going to be looking at, oh, if I want to edit this thing, I need to do some sort of transcode to a format from five years ago. Because like, you know, literally the computer, you know, a, a, a brand new 2020 13 inch MacBook Pro cuts 4K footage just fine. But now we have 8K footage. So it's always, you know, and it doesn't cut 8K footage fine. It starts to stutter with that. You start Charles, to see I, it slow down. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt the train of thought, but I want to, in case you're not going to come back to this particular point, I want to highlight it because it's something that I've discussed. It sort of makes me a bit of an old timer, but I always feel like when people talk about the fact that the cameras are ahead of the post gear, it always actually reminds me of our origins in film, because if you ever shot film, you know that you would create a cut off the work print, and then you would do the negative work, and then the finishing was done separately. And it was, and in some ways, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because you know it all better than me. But in some ways, I feel like the more we go down this path, this current path, the more we get away from the VHS model of video and more towards video as another kind of film in terms of what our process looks like. Like There were a lot of steps in a film process that were eliminated by the video era when it was like, oh, hey, I plug this thing into my camera, I turn on my camera, and then I edit this thing. <laughs> like, and there's no, like, this is the final thing then, you know, I think that, uh, uh actually that metaphor doesn't quite work. So forget it. But the point is, it's, well, no, you're be- referring to it as digital cinema and some people talk about it as a new digital negative. So I think your metaphor does work that like, there are certain video formats that are very simple and painless. And if like you shoot something on your iPhone and you edit it on your iPhone and you upload it to Instagram, you never have to think about any of this. And all of those things are happening. There are codecs and resolutions and, and all sorts of work, but it's all hidden from you really elegantly. But when you start trying to do more complicated things or professional workflows, you have to understand more the same way with film. You had to understand work print, negative and AB roles and, and you know, inner positive and all of that stuff that you just don't have to understand anymore. And if you did things like in the process of finishing to your film strip or like a bleach bypass, or like, like there were so many things you did to your negative or could do that weren't involved in your cutting or in your shooting, right? So I just think that it's closer to that and that that means there may be many tiers that this all exists on, right? There may be ones that, that can be housed on your home gear that you own, and there may be ones that require you to utilize machines that are extremely powerful and expensive that you can only rent that have professional people attached to them. I think that's a good thing that we have room for all of that, though. But there is one way 
in which I think 8K is not coming. So I think 8K is coming in the professional sphere of cinema cameras. I think, I mean, Red's been shooting 8K for like six years now. And although I do also point out better pixels matter more than more pixels, like people still love shooting Alexa, which the Super 35 Alexa is only two and a half K. It's not even 4K, but the color rendition is so great. And the nose profile is so great. And frankly, on a 20 foot screen, I have a 20 foot screen at my school and I regularly show this demo to students where I switch between 2K and 4K. And it's very hard for them to tell the difference. And that's on a 20-foot screen in a theater when you're sitting 10 feet away. On my home 4K TV where I sit 15 feet from it, it's very hard for me to see the difference between a 1080 source and a 4K source. And so many people choose Alexa for the color rendition and all of the other magic that Alexa brings to it. 8K is coming. Red will have 8K. Red will probably have a 10K or a 16K camera soon because they like to stay ahead of the bunch. Um, and we're gonna and we last year at NAB, we saw all sorts of 8k cameras from all sorts of people some of which looked really ugly and the colors look totally whack but they could say 8k (laughs) on them but where we're not likely to see 8k anytime soon in my opinion and i'm gonna hold on this is i don't actually think we're gonna see a big 8k broadcast infrastructure you know we we had a huge shift in broadcast infrastructure from standard definition to hd we've we've seen a big shift in broadcast infrastructure from HD to 4K, you can see a lot of your sporting events in 4K. I think there is a benefit in sporting events from HD to 4K, but it's not the big jump from SD to HD when you're watching a game in HD and you were like, oh my God, I can't believe I spent my whole childhood watching the Bulls in standard def. Um, And then when you jump from HD to 4K, it's not as dramatic. And I tell you what, I've seen a lot of 8K demos. And every time I see an 8K demo, I always have to get real close to the 85 inch monitor And I'm still like, does this look better than 4K? And the reason why I think broadcast infrastructure is not going to ever switch over to 8K is we're talking about, you know, going 8K in cinema cameras is not a big deal because it's these one-off purchases, individual people doing it. And you get benefits in cinema. I get reframing. I can zoom into the shot. I can do this, all this other stuff. If you want to go broadcast, you have to upgrade every camera in all the arenas. You have to upgrade the transponders and the switchers and and this whole infrastructure. And you have to do all that work of getting everybody to buy 8K TVs and 8K cable infrastructure and the whole thing. And I don't honestly think that there is enough benefit to the networks to switch to 8K that we will ever see broadcast go 8K. I think broadcast is going to stop at 4K. I'm I'm saying it because- Forever? Yeah. I don't think broadcast will go 8K. I don't think there's ever going to be a moment where you can watch the Olympics. I mean, maybe the Olympics. I thought they were preparing the Summer Olympics for 8K broadcast they were. in 2020. But how many the um, how many people were going to be able to actually see it in 8K? Do they have 8K TVs? Yeah, but like, do you know anyone who owns one? Nope. I didn't even know they had one. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I remember, I'm just thinking back, like, I wonder how much of it, like at a certain point in your age, you're just like, yeah. I'm good here. I'll stop here. Because remember when they made the move from standard def to high definition and there were all these ads like warning people and I assume it was all old people like, hey, you really need to do this because you're not going to be able to watch anything anymore. <laughs> do you guys remember ads like that? I do. I remember those. So and they had to funny. send out flyers to people and everybody <laughs> got a free converter. and Like mailers because it, it was like, this is going to happen. And even though you don't think you care and maybe you don't care, like you're just going to not have TV to watch. And I wonder if for that generation of person, the, the switch from black and white to color was just like, yeah, I'm good. That's enough for me like I'll, I'll this is where i get off the, the progress train but also we have this belief 
that's built on so many things that like technology just keeps getting better and 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 better. And we want to believe that. And in some arenas, it is totally true. And cinema cameras, in the blink of an eye, we're going to have 32K. Like there's going to be a 32K red trying to come up with a suitably silly name for it. I was going to say Monstro, but it's already called the Monstro. The Mega. Disastro. Yeah. Godzilla. Um, Yeah, the Godzilla. The Godzilla will be 32K. And you know what? I bet there'll be a project where I'm like, oh, we should totally shoot on Godzilla for this. I think the resolution (laughs) will benefit. God, I can't wait for them to use that name. Yeah. And so many cool puns. Mandotanium, of course. Yeah, the Mandotanium. I like to predict the future and and nobody cares if we fail. I I think I just hearing that made me think of the meme. The line from Jurassic Park that I'm cannibalizing is the, just because you can doesn't mean you should, or you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. And I do feel like sometimes with technology, there is a like, oh, we could do something like completely amazing, like next level, but are the economics there? Like, is it feasible to, is it sustainable? Is it, is the demand there? Like, and all those things. And then, uh, or will, you know, the dinosaurs just eat us. And I think that maybe you're right with, you know, maybe there will be a point where it, where it caps for a while. Cause it's like, it just doesn't make sense for us to continue to expand the size of what we're sending into people's homes because their homes are only so big. What are the cameras out there that are commercially available today? cameras for documentary film or for narrative film that you could go out and and shoot with. We should do an article on no film school with a spreadsheet. Mm, I like it. A chart. Here's my anecdote. I shot a movie a while ago when eight, when 4k, 4k was possible, but we, we brought it down to standard HD, standard HD, you know, regular HD, 1080p, whatever, um, closer to 2k. Um, because it meant we had so much more manipulation of the image and there wasn't anywhere it was going to go where 4k was necessary yet. So we just could crop a lot. We reframed a lot of things. We fixed a lot of mistakes because we shot like 10 days or something insane like that. Um, and that, you know, in the end, the way people see it to this day, however they find it, like it's, it's fine because most of them are not going to watch it in a situation. So I think that that's sort of where the expansion continues to make sense. I know you made overtures to that, Charles, before, but when we're talking about for the filmmakers like us, like, cause we cut it on a machine that could never have handled 4k, cut it on like an iMac or something, because like there's, there's, there's always a way that that having that tons of information can benefit you farther down the food chain. That's all I'm trying to say. All right. So speaking of the resolution leaders, Red are always the folks who are pushing resolution. Red has actually come out with the price points on their new camera. And there are specs. There is specs, but this is not the final spec list but we have a final price list before the final spec list. And what I really love about this final price list is the red Komodo camera will now be $6,000, but it's $7,000 if you want a fun color. And I really love that. You know, they did a lime green for Michael Bay. Uh, there've been a bunch of other ones. There's a, a white storm troop arm model. What are some of the other ones that have been out there? I think there was um, Lana Wachowski got one that, was hers orange? So there's a 6K Super 35 
millimeter camera. So 6K, obviously not 8K. You still have more resolution than 4K. You're going to get a little bit of um, reframing space in there if you want. Uh, it's a super 35 sensor. I know a lot of people are pushing towards full frame, full frame, full frame, but full frame sensors are still pretty big and still pretty expensive. You know, they have a full frame camera, the Monstro 8K Vista Vision, and it is $54,000. Um, so if you don't want to spend $54,000 on a camera, but you want to spend $6,000 on a camera, super 35 might actually give you what you want for me. The headline feature here, so it's natively a Canon RF mount. Canon RF is the replacement for EF. It's their new shallower flange focal distance lens mount um, for full frame coverage. So it's kind of funny because it's a super 35 sensor, but it's the sensor mount that's designed for full frame mirrorless. But whatever, EF also covered full frame. But here's the real uh, killer app. PDAF also known as phase detection autofocus. Now, why is that a killer app? Autofocus did not used to be something we cared about as filmmakers. It was one of the first lessons you gave people where you were like, the first thing you do is you turn off autofocus because autofocus used to be garbage. It would, it would like pop in and out a lot because it would keep trying to figure out what plane it wanted to be on. <laughs> oh yeah. It was drifting and it, you'd watch some doc and you'd be watching this person cry and then autofocus would lose it and find it again. And you'd be like, Oh, this is the worst. We're past that. We're now in a phase where I'm not going to say that autofocus is here for cinema makers. Like obviously Chris Nolan's not out there rolling with autofocus, but autofocus is coming and is starting to get better in ways that are actually really useful. The example I always give is I've, I've shot a couple docs on, you know, where we were doing like a low light interview or whatever, for whatever reason. And, you know, you've all shot that interview with someone who just keeps leaning forward and backward, like they're rocking on their feet. It's a stand up interview. And, you know, if you're in a shallow depth of field, they're going to go in and out of focus the whole time as they're popping forward and back and you get better at holding them. But a really good autofocus system that actually can keep them in focus sort of naturally I mean, the, the FX9 from Sony, which is sort of a $13,000 camera that just came out, its autofocus is ridiculous. And it does phase detection, so it can identify faces in frame, and you can tap on them. And as it walks ar- as a person walks around, it'll endeavor to keep that person in focus. And for a lot of activities, autofocus is now coming. But autofocus is something that Red and Alexa, the sort of cinema folks, have always kind of ignored. They're like, we do cinema. When you're doing cinema with an interchangeable PL mount lens, you're going to have an external follow focus. You're going to have a first DC at the monitor. We're not going to bother with autofocus tools because that's not what we do. But now here we go. Here's one of the two major, we just do cinema. We don't do broadcast companies. And they're dropping some PDAF. They're putting it in there. And I think that's a really, like, this is the most interesting thing about all of the specs. I mean, look, you're going to have 120 frames per second, 2K recording, touchscreen display, all sorts of cool stuff. It only weighs 200 pa- two pounds. 200 pounds. <laughs> but I think PDAF is the thing where I'm like, oh, oh, you guys are like doing this interesting thing here. I'm so glad you highlight that because when I read the story and I look down the specs, that almost just becomes invisible to me. Like I'm not even thinking about it. I'm looking at the other stuff and, you know trying to figure out what some of it means. But that's one that I'm just like, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a lot of people out there who are also immediately drawn to that and the implications, but it's really interesting to hear you highlight it because yeah, that is that is kind of weird. 
Our final story this week, we are going to talk about there was a writer's reunion from The Sopranos held on Zoom. We have a link to it on the site, and we have a whole article on the site with a whole bunch of follow-up takeaways. I really enjoyed it. Um, It's writer's reunion from writers of The Sopranos, David Chase, showrunner, creator of The Sopranos. Um, Matthew uh, Weiner, who went on to create uh, Mad Men and was showrunner on Mad Men, and then Terrence Winters, who did Boardwalk Empire. And uh, it was really enjoyable. There were a lot of great takeaways. The two that stuck out most to me is that David Chase doesn't read specs that are set in his show, which I love because one of the things when you're first starting out in this industry, people are always like, oh, you got to do a spec of whatever the hit show is. What's the hit show this year? You got to do a spec for that show to try and get staffed on that show. And I get that. But uh, David Chase's whole thing was like, I just want to read a spec that like shows me a little bit about who you are and I learn about who you are and your writing skills and that. And then I meet you and I try and see if you can hang. And, you know, famously the spec for Mad Men, which later became Mad Men is what got hired, what Wiener hired on the Sopranos. And it makes total sense because it is a great spec. It is a great pilot script. It totally works. And yet when you can see how that would be the thing. And I really enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed the fact that like the thing they talked about the most and all they're really focused on was character. And, you know, my wife had never seen The Sopranos, so now we're re-watching The Sopranos. She's never seen it. It is amazing how comfortable that show is with having almost no plot sometimes. There's plot. It happens. But sometimes it just does not care to have a plot. It is completely content to just be character-driven, which is crazy for a mob show. And um, the character work is so enjoyable. It's so good. And so, of course, that is the first big takeaway is – they're just talking about all of the amazing character work. I really liked the idea that you should kind of always hold on. And this has to go back to what you just said, Charles, but you always kind of hold on to your prospective ideas for pilots, ideas for episodes, because eventually they might work their way into something else, even if you weren't intending it, which I think is a very refreshing idea because when you're a writer, you might have a whole bunch of lists of potential pilots or a list of potential scripts and you might be frustrated by looking at all of them except for they might find their way home in different ways and i thought that was refreshing um, to hear again that, you know you can continue to pitch you can continue to hold on to things you, they might rework themselves in different ways so hopefully that was refresh as refreshing to you as it was to me to kind of read oh yeah as long as i keep these track as long as i keep these keep track of these and think about them and keep those channels open they might force their way back in in a different way which i thought was refreshing things can change I like that when I when I first saw Mad Men and really was like this is just amazing who is this guy who wrote Mad Men oh he wrote for the Sopranos okay that makes sense and then I learned that the Mad Men pilot was something that he'd tried like he wrote on many shows before Sopranos he'd been like a seasoned uh, Matthew Weiner this is seasoned TV writer sitcoms all kinds of things and he tried to get Mad Men out there and it didn't work but it ended up landing him Sopranos and then one day eventually he got Mad Men out there. It just shows you that like, wow, something great sometimes finds its way, you know, like sometimes it takes a long time and think about all the no's, you know, and think about all the times you, he probably thought about like, it's never going to happen or he'd given up on it. And it's, it became such a beloved, cherished show to so many. Um, So I love that. I love that that can happen. But I, I think that the character point is fascinating a character point in relationship to telling stories on television because um, 
you hear people say character a lot in meetings and in rooms and in what they want to see. But I think it's best to think about how functionally it works for an audience. The reason that you that a show like Sopranos, I think, can and Mad Men to some extent, can be about character and not plot so often is that people just want to see those characters. And what makes that work? If you're asking yourself as a writer or a creator, what makes people want to see those characters? And what makes you want to see those characters? Like what draws you to them regardless of what's happening to them in their world? Because that's the thing. Um, And I think that's kind of the secret sauce to good television. It did used to be that you were always told not that long ago to write a spec about a show you wanted, like shows you loved that were out there and to show that you could imitate voice and stuff. But it has become that showrunners can't read the specs about the shows they're doing. So a soprano, and it's funny, I talked about this this very topic on multiple other podcast interviews for No Film School, one with um, the one with um, Justin Roiland for um, Rick and Morty and Solar Opposites, because we were talking about how, you know, he's now created another show with a guy who was a writer's assistant on his show initially and how he ended up working with him, how he built his career. And you you can't anymore just say like you can't hand Justin Roiland who's the showrunner on Rick and Morty you can't hand or one of them you can't hand him your Rick and Morty spec he's not allowed to read it for legal reasons because if he were to use any of it it could get him in a lot of trouble it could get the network in a lot of trouble but he like a lot of people don't want to read your like your story they don't want to see your version of their show they want to see you and then that they bring into their show to enrich it really. Um, but also here's the funny counterpoint about how much it's changed. When I talked to Jonathan Frakes, who was on Star Trek The Next Generation, but directed a lot of it, he told me that a lot of the writers on that show came because they were fans and they just submitted their scripts for the show to the show. And the showrunners of that show, this was a long time ago, were like, oh my God, these are great episodes of Star Trek. We should hire these guys. So I think like, it's 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 funny because I could see the advantage both ways, and I think it's in some ways it's a shame you can't submit the you know demonstrate like hey I can write this show really well. Um, you have to find a creative way to do that now, but it's it's just cool to me that people like Ronald D. Moore, who are now like huge successful show runners and TV writers, he got his job originally by saying I'm a Star Trek fan, I can write an episode of Star Trek, and he sent his episode to Star Trek, and then you know launched a career. So that is this week on the No Film School podcast. You can check me out on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hayne. I finally posted on Instagram again. I do it like once every six months. And uh, you can check out my new web series, Salty Pirate, at saltypirate.tv on Ficto and Vimeo, VOD, and coming soon to Amazon Prime near you. This is Michelle Delator. You can find me on the Instagram and Twitter at mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. We hope to bring you some deep cuts next week. We hope to bring you, we want to hear more about whether or not you plan to adapt 8K. See you soon. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. I agree with Michelle, and we want to hear your questions. So don't forget to email questions of any kind to editor 
at nofilmschool.com. Uh, you can also email to ask at nofilmschool.com. We have a lot of cool stuff on nofilmschool.com, as always. Great stuff on the podcast. I did an interview with the director of Blackballed, a documentary about a really major incident in sports when an, a team owner made some overtly racist comments and it impacted all the players. It's a great doc. And here's the other cool thing. It's for Quibi. So it was our first Quibi filmmaker that we spoke to. But as always, like, rate, subscribe, comment. Let us know what we can do differently on the site and in the podcast. Have a great week in quarantine. <laughs>